This is a main hustle media podcast. to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity issues from the mixed race perspective. I am your host, Charmaine, a.k.a. Mixed Girl Maine, and I am joined again with Blurred Vision, my childhood yeah, friend. Uh, I wanted up? to chat with you for a few minutes about militancy because today's episode, I got to speak to Antonio, originally from Oakland. He grew up right around the time that the Black Panthers were sort of dissipating in the Oakland area, so there was still a lot of, you know, leftover feelings and sentiment about them where he was growing up and everything and so we do get into a little bit about militancy and what that means to our community and I know for me since I've been doing this a lot of people or not a lot of people a few people who have reached out to me on Twitter or Facebook I think even YouTube had asked me why militant because to them it doesn't have a very positive connotation and I always know before I even click on the picture of the person who sent me the message that they are not black so I thought you and I could chat for a few minutes about what it means to be militant and what militancy is to us and also how we think we got there. So let's go. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, and, and it's weird that you, it does have a different connotation when it when it does come to different races mm-hmm. and understanding of what that word means and how it was, uh, I guess, made to feel bad or made to feel, or people to, I guess, feel some type of way about it towards it, you know, from other places. So right. it is kind of a weird thing. Yeah, for me, I've always thought about racial militancy as a positive thing because the examples that I saw growing up were the type of people that were out there trying to clean up our areas or provide activities for the kids to keep them off the streets. Uh, You know, not to mention just like the Black Panthers, although they do have other, you know, connotations or whatever. Originally, they set out to improve their neighborhood and protect their neighborhood from gun-toting white people. They also are responsible for WIC, the Women, Infants, and Children program that eventually became a government program that helps children, uh, you know, mothers that need assistance with their children. So, like, to me, that's what militancy is. It's improving, it's self-gentrification, it's it's improving our areas, it's protecting our people or looking after our people. In particular, I know that I benefited when I was growing up in Long Beach from, it wasn't a youth center, it was like a community center inside a park near the high school that I ended up going to once I got older. And we would do our summer programs there. And that was kind of keep us active to stay away from the gangs that were very much part of our neighborhood. I was in the insane, insane crip neighborhood. So like that's, that was my first interaction with what I view now as racial militancy, like helping improve our neighborhoods and our people. What do you, what do you think was your first understanding or early understanding of militancy? I think, I mean, I think I, you know, um, I think that growing up, I think I, I was, I, I had the bad connotation kind of like thrust upon me in a sense that, you know, just growing up with a lot of white people around, it's mostly looked at as a as a derogatory word because it has that military mm. um, militaristic I guess feeling of look they're coming together um, not they, they they kind of they kind of separate it from what their goal is but just kind of these people are coming together and they're not you know and they're not happy about something and so I think right that was mostly uh, what I was given in the first place but I just I always felt it was just like 
I'm not taking this bullshit any longer. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not, I'm not going to sugarcoat it in a sense. I'm not, right. if I'm going to do something, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm going to just, this is what we're going to do for my people. You know what I'm saying? So that's kind of my first thing, you know? Yeah. That, ma- that makes sense to me. I, I, I do think some of the groups that are sort of considered militant do get a bad rap. I mean, it, it, to me, to even think of Black Lives Matter movement as a negative organization doesn't make any kind of sense to me whatsoever. You know, um, right. I understand them to be doing what I always believed racial militancy to be doing, you know, be out there to try to raise awareness and improve our situation. And here these women are being called terrorists for for what they're out there doing. And it just, it doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, I think we have the right to be upset about what's going on and, and to speak out about it and protests and gum up the works for the comfort of the majority, which right now is white people. And while it may come off negative, I think the only reason why it comes off negative is because it makes white people uncomfortable or because it gums up the works for white people in general. Right. Uh, I feel as though they feel as though it's a lot of aggressive, just aggressiveness. And they don't, they want, they want a person that's going to, they don't, they want a person that's going to do it nicely mm. and in the way that they want it to happen. And, you know, and, you know, organically, they like to say, you know what I mean? Like mm. it's just, you know, grassroots and come, no, but a, they don't want a person to jump from one to eight, nine, 10, you know what I'm saying? Right. Like, look, we don't, we don't want to pussyfoot around. We want to get there. Right. And so we're not going to, you know, take it lying down. You know I, what I mean? I think we, they attribute the aggressiveness of black people so quickly. Like it's, you mm-hmm. know, here, here, I mean, we have examples of, of like, a, I mean, you got the whole race of people. You don't even know, need to look outside of it. You have a whole race of people that were carried over on ships against their will, turned into slaves, traded their families members traded across the across the country, and with no chance of ever being able to find each other again. You breed them, you match them to you know the strongest and best you know, so that they produce offspring that are the strongest and best. And then slavery ends. And now you animalize them and monsterize them um, for these things that you, you made possible, you know, like it wouldn't have happened. And then, and then now when we try to do something peaceful, somehow we are still aggressive. When we try to do something just to raise awareness, sometimes somehow we are still, we are out there causing problems. We're rioting when, you know, we're just standing there walking down a street, you know, in a, in a large group of people with, with protest signs, no different. Like I never saw anything about the women's march that said they were being aggressive or animalistic or anything like that and yet you know a similar black lives matter march it was just viewed with all it was basically called a riot when right. there wasn't when the only violence that had happened those days were violence that were caused by white people on the outskirts of the of the march and i mean this is the kind of stuff that frustrates probably frustrates us into aggression Oh, I get you know? it. No, most definitely. Yeah. <laughs> but we don't we don't start from that place of aggressiveness. And and like for me, my version of militancy is it, I like I'm manifesting it through my podcast, right? I'm I'm using my voice okay. to to talk about the issues that are bothering me. I'm using my voice to collect mixed race stories, but because I, I know I'm not I'm not the person who can commit to every protest. Like you know, I can't walk from you know i can't go downtown la every weekend when there's something to protest about i feel like i want to but i just i haven't you know and i know that's not really the the type of 
of uh, activists that I that I am. You know, I was there for mm-hmm. a couple of them, but not for the bulk of them. I know that I'm not necessarily the kind of person that's going to do a human chain in front of a courthouse or or something like right. that. You know, I, I know this about me. So how do I ma- how do I manifest my activism or my militancy? and still be kind of in keeping with who I am as a person. And I think right now it's my podcast. Like that's the best way I can do is, is fight against the stereotypes or open up, basically show the world what is, what's not been seen about mixed race right. people. And I, one of the things, and maybe you get this too, I'm, I'm not sure. I get told a lot that I, I'm too militant or that why do I act, you know, why do mixed people act so militant compared to monoracial black people? I wouldn't say that we are more militant <laughs> than regular black people, but I would say that because we have the added issue of the visibility as being black enough, we tend to be enthusiastically militant. <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, yeah, and no, I get that. I, and, I, and I think a lot of it too, I think um, they kind of look at it like, well, you're a part of one thing. So why are you so, uh, you know, on one side of it? You know what I mean? Instead right. of saying, look, you are, you know, you, you're a part of one thing and you, you're, you're standing up wherever you are for that one side. They always feel like kind of like, you know, like when they look at me, they're like, well, you're, you're kind of part white. So why are you so aggressively on the black side, even though that's the first thing you saw right. when you saw me? Right. You know what I mean? So they kind of want to, to, to change that meter and have it go towards the middle and say, well, you can kind of be, you know, on both sides of this, but you're so far over to the black side. And if you're so far over to the black side, then that, then that, that kind of, kind of rubs them the wrong way because they feel as though you, you, you should go both ways. You know what I mean? In that case, I want to turn it back around on them and say, for every time I've been, I've been thought of as white before I've been thought of as black or Asian or, you know, whatever people think of me, Right. I will give you a day, a pro white day. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, we can do that for you. And since that has never happened to me in the history <laughs> of my life in 40 years, right. I don't have a pro white But I don't have it. I'm not anti-white either. I mean, I will talk about right. the, you know, the negative side of whiteness and I will expose that. But I won't. But I'm not sitting here saying like down with whitey or I hate white people or we should do to white people what they do to us. But I, I think that they feel as though that there's an either or. Right. There, There's not that, you know, we, with us, we understand that standing up for one side is not counting out another side they are you know those don't have to be mutually exclusive you know what i mean right you can have both thoughts like i love my white mom i go to you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. or I, you know I, but i want to stand up for my my black uh, folks too so i mean it's it's one of those things where they feel as though it's an either or and it's not right I, and that yeah. kind of that kind of boggles their mind in, in a sense because I, well and i and i understand it in, in a sense that they're only one thing so they kind of only have that one angle so they can't really see a person that has that both sides type of thing yeah but yeah but how to expect us to even be able to think on their terms like you know if if we are always approached by our otherness we can't get into a white mentality we can't get into a white space like right i can try like even you being raised with with your white mother present in my case my both of my parents were half white so even with any kind of little influence of white of whiteness in my life, I could never walk around and have their same experience. So I do not feel like I can I can jump on that side and be like, yeah, you know, I don't think people of color have it, the, you know, as bad as 
you know they act or anything i could never i can never get, right. vote against my own in that in that way not to say that i agree with every aspect of of black politics or or people of color politics and things like that mm-hmm. like there are going mm-hmm. to be some areas in which i don't necessarily but i i just i just can't go that way i, I can't put myself in a mindset where i can understand an entirely white position you won't. I mean, you won't. I mean, it's it. And again, it's just because it, it, it's they wouldn't. It's it's just like them trying to understand it from our point of view. It's very very hard for them to do that. Now, some of them can come around, but they still obviously have that white mentality in the way that they had to come to that position. Mm-hmm. It's going to still be there. So we're never going to be in a sense where we're on one side uh, or I guess on the opposite side of what we are labeled as and you know and and, and and treated as because that's the only way that we have been looking at it you know what I mean so I guess we're both on the same side in a sense that we can't look at it on that other end yeah. we're just trying to make them understand it and maybe they can come to the middle a little bit you know yeah. a little bit easier it, it is kind of why I want to try to find a white passing mixed race person to talk to I mean I've been actively trying to f- find a white passing uh, mixed race person to talk to I've, I've gotten in uh, email exchanges with a few that haven't kind of worked out in terms of having an, an interview with but I want to try to understand what would it be like to be mixed and white passing and and be able to understand whiteness better than right. you or I or the most people that I have talked to so far can be. I mean, I have a few people I've spoken to that um, are white-ish, you know, like they, mm-hmm. they can kind of be seen as white, especially um, Asian white people that I've spoken to. I've had a couple of them where they've said something like I can be white in some spaces where people aren't paying that close attention, right. um, you know, but that they still feel like they're other. I don't know if that's the same for, say, like a black and white biracial person that is white passing, you know, a, right. the opposite experience of you. I wonder if that would be the case. And I would I'd, I'd be curious to see what their militancy would be like if they feel invisible as a black person. Or do they even feel like because I, 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 I guess I'm just looking at it in my in my perspective is that do they even feel like if they are a person of color, but they are passing as white, are they do they have a feeling of an imposter type thing or do they have a feeling mm. of, well, they don't know who I really am. And that's you know what I mean. So are they just I don't even see it that way. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that, I guess w- that would be question. really interesting. I, I definitely kind of keep that in my mind if I do get to find somebody. So hopefully if anybody is listening yeah. who is a biracial or mixed race person who you. is white passing, please hit us up <laughs> because <laughs> we want to hear your stories, too. For the most part, I'm, I'm speak. The people who have reached out have been some form of black mix. I've only mm-hmm. spoken to, I think it's three people the four people that are that aren't black at all but they are some kind mm-hmm. of mixed race and and of those one of them has black mixed race kids so so they were okay. far more like understanding in terms of like the way you and I kind of are about things right you know the dynamics of colorism with their children you know everything like that so so it is it's just a it's just a gap that i've had i mean i know i'm only in episode three at this point so i'm not that far (laughs) behind but (laughs) i do feel the gap like i definitely want to share that story uh so today the the interviewee is antonio he's originally from oakland he ends up moving down to la and he works in the film industry but he he's uh half mexican half cape verdean like black portuguese and his things uh, was 
interesting where he talks about how he grew up thinking he was Portuguese until it was kind of corrected and say, no, you're Cape Verdean and Portuguese don't really acknowledge white Portuguese don't really acknowledge Cape Verde as a place, you know, as a as a place of Portuguese heritage because they're dark skinned because they're black and so he has an experience of being sort of like this black mexican kid who i see when i look at him i see a black person but i can tell that he's mixed in the same way that like i look at you and i see a black person that i can tell Uh is mixed and and but it's really about like whoever sees him and sort of what they're where they're coming from if they see him as mexican or if they see him as black which i think is really interesting but it played into sort of his militancy too plus he grew up in oakland when you know the black panthers are sort of winding down or the 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 leftover of what they had done for the mm-hmm. community had sort of like filtered out and he he starts to talk about the how his dad had a big problem with Felix Mitchell's funeral being broadcast on the news in the 80s and he was the notorious drug dealer in Oakland that made like twenty, thirty thousand dollars a day in the community selling crack and cocaine and things like that. But when he died, his funeral his funeral was huge and it was like it was as if like a member of the royal family in England had died. There was processions, there was horse drawn carriages, there were Rolls Royces, like seventeen Rolls Royces. And then you got a mixed wow. bag of people being interviewed on the news where like in one case it's someone's like, He was a hero to me and then in other cases it was someone going, I don't know why we're glorifying this drug dealer. You know, we're supposed to be showing people that drugs don't pay, but this looks like drugs you know, pay, like crime pays. Right. Right. And so that kind of starts off I think the militant mentality that, that Antonio was talking about and it's 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 why this episode well this episode is a little precious to me because he was the first one of the first people I've talked to so far that has that mirrors my own mentality about about militancy and wanting to help the community but also being like I don't give a fuck about your comfort <laughs> Right. You know, like if I'm right. making you uncomfortable mm-hmm. with this, I don't I don't really care. And and not in a negative way, just in a kind of a way of like for centuries my people have been treated a certain way and I'm I'm not going to allow it to I'm not gonna allow your comfort to get in the way of me talking about this injustice and, and so right. I really and like it talking. Yeah. Um and I think getting a chance for you and I to talk about this too is you know, it's just what we've been doing for for years ah. and everything. Yes, ma'am. So, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and jump over to Antonio's interview. And then you and I could talk about comics or something. All right. <laughs> excited to get a chance to talk to you again. I know we've had our kind of preliminary discussion, but I think when I first saw you contact me, I was I was really excited with you because you pretty much checked all my personal boxes. Um, the, <laughs> the, you know, growing up in a, a, a similar type of setting like mine, I guess you're in Oakland, I'm Long Beach. The, the militancy, the sort of anti-religion, organized religion thing is just like check, 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 check. Um, so I'm glad, I'm glad to get a chance to kind of talk to you a little bit. 
bit. Why don't we start in with you just kind of giving us a little peep into your your origin, and then we can kind of get in going from there. Okay. Ethnically, my background, my father is uh, Mexican-American, and my mother is Cape Verdean. American. Both are, uh, I want to say, second generation, second or third generation uh, American. My dad grew up in the Central Valley of California, and so did my mother. They ended up meeting in Sacramento, West Sacramento, California, and then moving to San Francisco for work because they were both pretty uh, educated for the area and for the families, you know. And so uh, they also chose to reside in Oakland for the same reasons a lot of people do now, which is it's just not as expensive or crowded as San Francisco. And so that's how I ended up in in Oakland. And then um, more specifically, I grew up I grew up, it's interesting, I grew up in a white neighborhood because of where they bought their house, but with black people because of where they they put me in school. And oh, were you uh, bused? no, I wasn't bused. They went to the the Oakland public schools are pretty bad. Mm. And so they put me in private school. Oh, okay. And so the private school that I went to was predominantly African American, uh, some Latinos, very few white Americans. Um, but yeah, so I got a a pretty good cross cultural mix. Um because they bought a house right off the Piedmont border, which mm. Piedmont is one of the highest tax brackets in the state. Mm. So like their public school is great, <laughs> but you know, you can't go there unless you right. live in Piedmont. So, uh, but similarly to kind of how you and I look on things, my parents didn't want to live in Piedmont. So they bought a house right on the Oakland side of the border. Mm. And it's really like affluent neighborhood and then raised me with the same demographic or uh, in the same class that I would have lived in if we stayed in the neighborhood that I was, you know, born and raised right, right. until I was about six. So um, that's a little bit about my geographical background, a little bit about my ethnic background. Um, as far as, you know, the perspective that I have on a lot of things politically, you and I were talking about, you know, I was telling you that I think being from Oakland and how Oakland is politically charged, mm -hmm. I think that has a lot to do with um, the way that I came into being, the perspective that I have, you know, on race and on ethnicity and politics and everything, because, you know, uh, I was born in 81. So I was coming up during the whole crack epidemic happening in Oakland. You know, we had just come out of like the Black Panthers being a movement and really starting a lot of political commentary, not just in Oakland, but around the state. Mm -hmm. We hadn't yet gotten into the racist gun laws where they wanted to, you know, then, then ban guns because the Black Panthers were using them to protect the community and all that kind of stuff was happening as I was a, like a really young boy. Okay. So I remember like I remember my dad being pissed off that they were televising Felix Mitchell's uh, funeral for instance, mm -hmm. one of the big time drug dealers in Oakland that really turned it into a violent type of uh, a place during the 80s. And I can remember, you know, my parents not wanting me to play outside in the streets or off of the quad of our apartment building or townhomes for that reason. You know, um, I remember the feeling of the kids being very mature and very street savvy for their age, the kind of stuff that we would know about or talk about or see or do. You know, I remember the fights 
I remember, God, just <laughs> so much of like what you might see in a movie now about yeah. that era of just like really living it, you know, the cross color clothes and. Oh, that was my time too. <laughs> the hill figure being popular and, you know, just yeah, all, yeah. all that kind of stuff, you know, it brings back memories. But did you get any. Uh, so, how was it with the, the you know, the, your complexion being in the neighborhood you were? I know you're in a fairly right. mixed up area, but are you. Right. Are you looked at as black? Are you looked at as Latino or what? Uh, I really come to believe that it depends on the perception of the person who's looking at me. I see. Because I, yeah, yeah, because like uh, when I was really young, up until about six years old, I lived in, uh, I wouldn't say the hood, but more of like a lower middle class neighborhood where there were a lot of more minorities. Mm -hmm. My priest was down the street. There was all people, all types of people of color, mixed races, white, black, mixed peoples. And I don't remember being seen as anything different than mm. than what I was. You know what I mean? I remember all of us kids playing in the quad, sharing toys, fighting over toys, forming little groups, uh, like how kids do just normal, but not along racial lines, right? Okay. Once my parents bought the house, in an affluent neighborhood, then all my neighbors became white. Mm. So one of the things that I noticed right away was that there was a lot less kids in that neighborhood. Oh, it was, okay. yeah, it would be more like, I want to say like uh, 30 year old and older white people. There's a senior citizen home in the area. And because we're on the border of Piedmont and Oakland, you know, up in Piedmont, those families tend to stay to themselves in their houses. They do mm -hmm. like community activities and stuff like that. So that's when I started spending more time to myself, I feel like, outside of school. Mm. Because in my neighborhood, there was no one like me to play with. And I would go down to the park with my bike or with the basketball, and there'd be white kids there playing and stuff. They kind of like kept yourself. No one would really like make an effort to kind of include me. And then I remember I was telling you uh, when I was about seven years old, my mom had put me in the Piedmont Baseball League. Mm -hmm. They had a good baseball league. And we lived right at the like if the if Piedmont's at the top of the hill, we live at the bottom of the hill in Oakland. Okay. So uh, I I played from when I was, I think, six to seven, from first first to second grade. Mm -hmm. And then in the second grade, one of those families reported me for not living in Piedmont. Oh, of course. And, and they kicked me out of the baseball league <laughs> for that, I swear to God. <laughs> so after that, I was like, fuck Piedmont. So they didn't <laughs> finish the... Uh, season but in uh, during during that season and a half that was when i had my first um racist incident okay. with the little white boy and so uh i had won the spot i think it was first base i had won first base and i was a power hitter so i was like third or cleanup batter mm-hmm and he wanted he wanted that first base spot. So when they announced that I got it, uh, he called me a stupid Mexican. Right. So uh, like a knee jerk reaction, like I go to hit him mm -hmm. and like I'm cocking back to sock him. And my mom, she grabbed me, she grabbed my arm. How'd she get to you that fast? <laughs> because she knew she knew what I was going to do. 
you know, and she pulled me away from him and she told me, you know, she was like, it's not, it's not his fault. He learns that from his parents, right? from his parents. And then I, I looked, you know, to see what his parents are doing. Cause here's my mom reprimanding me. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and his parents aren't saying anything to him. Right. Oh, you know what I mean? And so that was my first uh, incident with racism where like I was the target of it. I'm sure I probably was not noticing it all around sure. me at the time, but Do you think you were about seven or eight years old when that? I was when about that seven. No, I know I was about seven because when I was eight is when I started basketball mm. my school. And I had It's about the same time for me too. I was like third, maybe fourth grade and there was a little girl I used to hang out with all the time and we had a, an assignment where we were supposed to bring photos of our parents to school, we were supposed to draw them. Oh, okay. And I, so I had this picture of my, I, I didn't have a picture of my mom and dad together, but I had two separate pictures. And so the little girl goes, why is your dad brown? And I was like, I don't oh, know, he's man. brown. And, she's, yeah. and, she, and so she's like, that's weird. And I'm like, I don't think so. And then she went home and the next day she told me she couldn't hang out with me anymore because my dad was a nigger. Oh my God. And I didn't know the word. I didn't right, know it yet. That was my first hearing of it. So I go home to my half white, half Japanese mom and I'm like, you know, I forget her name, maybe Sarah, Jennifer or something like that. It was like a little blonde girl. So I was like, you know, a little blonde girl said she can't hang out with me because my dad's a nigger. What's a nigger? And my mom, she's five foot, half an inch and angry as fuck. And so she, <laughs> go, she goes to the school ready to fight their parents. And like she explains to me that it's a racially charged, you know, thing and, and all that kind of stuff. But she's ready to fuck up these people's life <laughs> and um and the principal of my school knew my mom because he was her sixth grade teacher and he was like oh, okay here we go like and had to kind of make sure that that didn't that didn't go down and but that was my understanding oh it is different that my dad is brown and my mom is white looking or whatever right. so i figured it out then but it still took a minute for me to really get yeah it's, it's kind of hard when you're a kid to mm -hmm. I remember trying to explain to one of my black friends that I'm a Mexican. She asked me, what am I, you know? And, and, and so I'm trying to tell him and he, he can't, he can't grasp the concept. Right. He's like, he's like, so you're like white and black. <laughs> Cause there's only two, right? Right. <laughs> I'm like, no, nah, I'm completely different from that, you yeah. know? I'm like, but I'm mixed like that. Like, mm -hmm. I'm still mixed like that, yeah, with That's different funny. things. You know what it's I mean? Like, but I remember, I, I, it's funny because I have, you know, you don't remember much from when you're little, but mm -hmm. I do remember these instances when people talk right. about race. It's really weird. I, and, like, I, I remember one time... Uh, I remember one time one of my cousins coming to my grandma's house and asking us a, a family friend what they were who was there because she'd never seen anybody that looked like him before. Mm. Oh, my grandma got pissed off. <laughs> you don't ask people that. That's rude. How right. dare you ask him that? And, you know, she had a fit. And so my cousin's like, oh, shit, because my grandma, she would get in your ass, you know? <laughs> he was just like hoping he didn't get hit at that point. <laughs> He's like, I'm sorry. And, is this and, on and, the Mexican side or the Cape Verdean side? No, this is in the Cape Verdean side. They weren't playing around. 
No. And I noticed that race played a lot stronger, pulled a lot stronger emotion out of them than it did my Mexican family. Mm. But yeah, but then I remember leaving with my dad and he told me in the car, he said, you know, he said, that's your grandma's house. So I don't say anything, he said, but it's okay for your cousin to be curious mm-hmm. about what somebody's ethnicity is. Nothing wrong with that, you know. He said, now you have to be careful how you ask somebody or the way that you come about it. He was like, but there's nothing wrong with a kid being curious about someone's ethnicity. Mm. So what we've talked about before and this, it kind of seems like your dad was really the one that sort of helps you understand your mixed identity. Oh, yeah. From throughout. Yeah. If it wasn't for my dad, I laugh because I'm thinking like, how long would I have gone thinking that I was... Mexican and Portuguese versus Mexican and Cape Verdean. Right, right. You know what I mean? Because the Cape Verdean means black. That's what it means. You know, Mm -hmm. if you talk to Portuguese people or because like there's Azor Islands, too. Mm -hmm. They're just off the coast of Portugal and and they look like, you know, European, Portuguese, like how they do in the mainland, too. Yeah. Plus, you got a lot of Portuguese that don't know where Cape Verde is or they don't consider us Portuguese. Right. You know, it's the same way that Spanish don't consider Mexican to be Spaniards. Right. Because right. we're not. Yeah. And, and, but it has a negative connotation coming from the mainlands. Right. Sure. Where we're looked at as bastards, mm-hmm. basically. Right. The mixed bloods and all that kind of stuff. So. I know I have Portuguese blood and I know I have Spanish blood, but I choose not to be Portuguese and I right. choose not to be Spanish, you know, and I'm That's very adamant about very adamant about that yeah. though, because it's the culture, you know, it's the, it's the opinion. I feel mm-hmm. like it's very subjective. And if they want to look down on me for being what I am, then I want to be proud of that, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's a strong sense of pride. I used to get mad when I would hear Mexicans saying, oh, we're we're half Spanish and half Aztec. And it's like, fuck that, you know. Especially after all, all that those music. hundreds of years, we become something totally different. You, um, that, there's that. And there's like there were hundreds of millions of Indians here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like a few hundred thousand Spaniards come. Everybody doesn't turn Spanish. And then you got like you got Mayans and Olmecs and you got the Nahuatl people and Mesoamericans in general. There were hundreds and thousands of different tribes and mm-hmm. cultures that you can't just choose up on Aztecs either or choose up on mine. You know what I mean? People like to go, they like to choose up on what's popular or this or that, but it's similar to what African-Americans experience in a sense where we've forgotten our identity. We don't know what tribes we come from. We don't know what piece of land we grew out of and, all, you know, trying to put right. it back together and trying to look, look at it. You get a lot of confusion sometimes with it. I feel like, you know, Yeah, we did talk about this before. You said for your family that's in the Central Valley, and I lived out there in the same area, so I remember being surprised by how the Mexicans that were local there were very anti-Mexican, like in in terms of anti-immigrant Mexican. They didn't want to be associated. Right. Um, And I was just like, where did these Mexicans from? I didn't know. I didn't know until I moved out there. They're here. 
They helped put Trump in office. They put and they defeated uh, eight like um, Prop Eight. So right oh yeah, there. I mean, well, here's the thing, guys. I know exactly what it is. They don't want the competition. You know, the migrant Mexicans, they work the same jobs as the the local Mexicans. So like I was telling you, my family's been here. My Mexican family's been here since before there was a border. Right. And the way that we had survived the uh, depression, the Great Depression, was because we were ranchers. So, you know, we had we had vegetables and we had meat. And so, you know, not having money wasn't as much an issue. You actually have food. Mm. Also had some other family that were government butchers during the Depression. Mm. So and then like my my uncle Ramon, his name is Ray Raymond. Uh, my uncle Joaquin, his name is Jack. He's Uncle Jack. Mm. Uh, my grandpa Antonio is Tony. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I have an aunt named Connie. And so when you say their name, Consuela, you say their names out, their Spanish names, Mexican mm-hmm. names, but they don't go by that. Mm-hmm. They go by very Americanized sounding versions of the names. And, uh, you know, they dress Anglo, they speak Anglo, they, you know, have almost, uh, it's funny because on uh, face value, they have almost no Mexican culture. Mm-hmm. But then if you know them, you know that they're very proud Mexicans. They're very, very proud Mexicans. Code switching. <laughs> yeah. No, for real. You know, it's, they speak Spanish in the house. I I had one Uncle Trino who never spoke English, ever. Hmm. He died not speaking English, you know. And uh, they want their kids to have that culture and that pride. And, you know, they have the blankets and they have the music and they, you know, you start doing when you start looking past the surface, you start to see it. You know, the Wyavetas or whatever it is mm-hmm. that they're wearing. So does that inform your uh, I remember asking you, do you go by Antonio? Or do you go by Tony? And you you were pretty like, yes, I, I'm Antonio. Um, does their kind of version of representing their Mexican heritage speak to how you decide to present? Uh, it's it's weird. I think it's because I'm named after my father and he's named after his father that I don't like being called the same thing that they call my dad. They call my dad Tony. OK, so I think I wanted to be called something different. And then my mom, I don't think my mom liked calling me Tony. like my mom's never called me Tony. Mm. My dad's never called me Tony. So I think it was more my parents. I and I picked that up from them. So even as a little kid, you were just straight up Antonio. <laughs> yeah. The same with me. I'm Charmaine. And when someone tries to pick a nickname, I'm like, nope, don't say it. Because people will call me Char sometimes. And I'm like, I'm not blonde hair from wasp from Connecticut. I'm from the hood. My name is Charmaine. <laughs> My friends call me Tone. That's a mm-hmm. nickname I got in like the third grade. So I will go by that in um, social circles and with my friends, but I never use it in the industry. Right. I always make them call me Antonio. <laughs> oh, I yeah. like it. I like when you're. So that's one thing that I really like about about you is a couple of things that you you've said. It's like you you feel per, you seem to me very grounded in your mixed identity and the in similar way that I feel like I definitely had my crisis times when I wasn't black enough. Like I you know I feel black even though I you see how yellow I am and everything. You know I was raised black. My name is Charmaine Latrice. Like everything about me 
to me says that I'm black, but when other people see me, they don't necessarily see it. So I, I went through my crisis, but now I'm, I'm grounded in it. And it's like, look, I'm black, I'm mixed black, I'm black Asian, you know, whatever, but black is always the top for, for me and I'm comfortable in it. But you said something that was like, like, look, I'm not going to deny any part of it. And I'm like choosing to, to say your Cape Verdean versus Portuguese, like making sure, you know, you will identify that my blackness is here and you will identify that my Mexican heritage is old Mexican heritage, not American, you know, um, you know, mm-hmm. U.S. American Mexican heritage and stuff like that. Like, I really like that you you're there, that you're that grounded in it, because it's when I talk to some people that aren't quite as grounded in it, I feel bad. Like, oh, what is what, what was missing that you didn't get a chance to, you know, live, yeah. your, life, live your mixed life? I feel that, too. I feel bad for people because so, it's like almost like you don't know yourself, you know. Yeah. It's almost like you don't know yourself because I, I, I see like a lot of people flocking to get those DNA tests. And I think I do want to get one eventually, but I'm good. I know like I know what I am. You know what yeah. I mean? I feel right, like right. that, like whatever, whatever the percentage is or how high or low something might be. Yeah. Like I, I know what I am, you know. I, and- I think about that, too, because <laughs> I'm like, I know that essentially I'm a quarter black because my dad was half. But right. I'm doing a test right now, the African-American Ancestry one, the one at AfricanAncestry.com, but it's patrilineal. So I can't take it myself. It has to be from the, the Y chromosome. So I had my uncle, my dad's brother. My dad's no longer around, but I asked my, my dad's brother, I'll pay for it if you spit in the tube, like, because I'm curious, but I don't need it in terms of my identity. Like, right, if I right. find out, I'm just curious where we're from. I do eventually want to go to West Africa and kind of walk through the gates and all that kind of stuff. But and if I know by then where family comes from, it would be nice to just kind of see those cultures. But it's not going to make me say I'm Senegalese or I'm Sierra right. Leone or something like that. It's I'm still going right. to be black. My my heritage right. is black. I understand my black heritage. I would have to learn a lot in terms of my African heritage to be able to say I'm African. I don't think I will get there. I don't, I don't, it would just be nice to know, you know, but it's not like I need it. Yeah. Well, that's the thing I think is that some people need it, you know, Mm -hmm. some people want to find out they're Nigerian and go to Nigeria and buy a bunch of Nigerian garb and bring it home there, you know, some people, and some people need that. You know what I mean? Like maybe right. their whole life they knew they were black and they, but they didn't know what else they were, or they right. that wasn't enough for them because of the experience they've had as a black person. Maybe you know what I mean? So I do wonder if I find out I'm like nine percent black versus percent <laughs> where I'll be like, shit, my whole identity is based on this nine percent. But um, <laughs> it's I don't like think you know, so. my dad was was half, and he's black enough. His dad was was dark as hell. His hit and my. My great grand, my great grandfather was really, really dark, but he also had a Native American face. Um, so we knew, we know there's other stuff going on. And yeah, my great grandmother was white, light enough to pass. So like, I know I'm not a full 25%, but I'll be. I think that would be the only thing that would derail me a little bit is I find out I'm like nine <laughs> percent. I'll be like, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no. Other than that, I feel pretty grounded in in my in my identity as a mixed person. But where, and I think you and I both share this in terms of where we grew up in the political climates that we grew up in, with, uh, in kind of speak to our militancy a little bit. And then maybe even, I don't know if this is the case for you, but for me, it's the denial of my 
my blackness because of my skin tone tends to add to that. Like if a white person, I mean, I'm essentially half white, but a white person's never going to be like, oh, you're family. Whereas right. like, a black person just sees my face and they're like, oh, hey, little sis. And I already know <laughs> we don't have to talk about it. I already know that they know and we're all, we're all good. Um, right. I, when I am asked what I am by white people versus other people, or when I am told I'm exotic fucking looking and you know, <laughs> about that kind of stuff. Um, that's what kind of makes me feel more militant. And even today on my, you know, the Facebook memories that tells you what happened. Well, today my memory was a person says, Hey, what nationality are you? And I say, American. And they say, Oh, weird. I thought you were going to be a Latino or Filipino. And I'm like, no, the nation that I was born in is the United States of America. So I am American. And the puzzle, like look on people's faces when I tell them that my nationality is American. It's like the word nation is built in. If you can't figure out that nationality means what country you come from, I don't know how to help you. Um, but <laughs> so that's when I get like really defensive about it. And so for with white people, I tend to make them jump through a lot more hoops to get to, to what <laughs> right. my ethnicity is make than I do for other people. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, I know what you want to ask. Come on. Come on, ask it. You're, you're white and entitled. Let's do it. Uh, <laughs> so I do. I feel like I, I make white people jump through more hoops. Even though I'm essentially half white, I've never felt white. I don't know my white family. I, I knew my British grandmother growing up, but there's a, even a different kind of white than the white I have to be faced with on a regular basis. So... Right. But like, like that's all what plays into the militancy. And then you and I both share also the the religion thing and how we feel that it it's hurting our cultures. In your case, Christianity and Catholicism's impact on the Latino community. For me, I have a problem with with I get really upset with black Christians because I'm like, you do know that this was a system of control that they used during slavery to keep us in check. And now you're sitting there praying white Jesus like crazy. (laughs) And black Christians don't like to be told that it was a tool, a system of control for slavery. So like we can we can jump into that a little bit about like your experience growing up and what kind of spoke to you not wanting to. Yeah, I mean, when we spoke about the the heaviness of the idea of sin, mm-hmm. you know, at such a young age. And I think that that ultimately um, is probably what, that's probably what started, you know, if there was like a, a eye hole that, that opened the floodgate on my thinking in this way, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's, it's probably the experience I had with religion as a child and being like a pretty good kid, constantly in fear of God for the stupidest reasons, you know, mm-hmm. everything from telling white lies to like not doing <laughs> my homework on time when shit like, you know what I mean? Just stuff I'm like so that. I'm so glad I met you. So <laughs> silly. It's the silliest stuff that now, you, you know, looking back on it, you like, Number one, that was stupid, right, mm-hmm. to be thinking that way. But number two, like, why would we put that on children, on their psyche? You know, why would right. we impress such a heavy? The only thing that I can think is that people forget what it's like to be a kid or they mean to do it. They do it on purpose. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Which is what I think is fucked up about the church, because I think I think the church knows exactly what they're doing when they do like of that abuse, stuff. Though. It, like, it's pretty. It's I mean, it's abusive in general. Right. There's still there's still people 
our age mm-hmm. who think that way mm-hmm. about us. Almost every minute of the day, they yeah. think God is looking over their shoulder. You know what I mean? And I can be a dick about it, too, because when someone's <laughs> like, you believe in God? I'm like, no, I'm 40. <laughs> I grew out of that shit. Right. You still believe in Santa? You know? But, yeah, I mean, to the point where I've actually wondered if I'm going to let my wife teach the kids about Santa Claus and stuff. You know what I mean? Because yeah. I think it reinforces this notion about some sky daddy, you know, that that's that knows what you're doing when nobody you call them sky daddy. I do, too. <laughs> <laughs> I have a buddy that that calls him sky daddy. I, I can't remember how. I don't know why I asked him. I asked him if he believed in God because some some about him told me that he yeah. didn't. And he was he looked at me. He was like, <laughs> "Let me tell you something, Tonyo." He was like, "My daddy told me that it ain't no sky daddy in the sky looking down on me, <laughs> looking out for what I'm doing. It's just me and these bills we gotta pay." <laughs> He's like, "We gotta go to work." <laughs> Get I was like, that okay. Is so funny. <laughs> but it's funny because, you know, it's something that people don't talk about mm-hmm. for good reason. And that reason is that everybody who really does believe in all of that stuff will find it so devastating mm-hmm. to hear you talking about that, about their God, you know? They don't want to, they don't want to find out it's wrong. I had one conversation with a lady and it was the most circular conversation about religion I've ever had because she was like, you know, blah, 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 Jesus, I'll pray for you something. And I'm like, oh, don't, don't waste a prayer on me. I'm an atheist. You know, it's, you know, it's not going to do anything. And she was like, well, no, no. What turned you away from Jesus? And I was like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm an atheist. I always was an atheist. And so like, I mean, I was raised in a church, but I did not believe in God from, from, day one. Right. And uh, she's like, oh, well, what turned you away from Jesus? I'm like, nothing turned me away from Jesus. I was born an atheist just like you were, because atheist means <laughs> a lack of belief in God. You uh-huh. did not believe until you were indoctrinated. I said, so I've never, never believed in him. So there's no point in turning away. And she's like, yeah, but what stopped you believing in Jesus? It's like, no, I never did. So <laughs> right. like, nothing stopped me. And then she goes, okay, but like, when you didn't think God existed anymore. It's like, I don't know how to talk to you. This is a weird, repeated thing. She she couldn't understand. There's no way for her to. (laughs) And it it just drives me nuts. In my case, you know, and it's not like some of it didn't get in there. Like, I definitely had some problems with, as I'm, say, maybe 12 or 13, we're at this church and everybody's, it was a non-denominational, so they were tongue speakers. So everybody's out there speaking tongues and then someone would translate the tongues at some point. And (laughs) so, oh gosh, so it'd be like, you know, you hear like la 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 going on and then someone's just like, and then the Lord said, and they just start talking off their ass and all these people are filled with the fucking Holy Spirit and I'm like, what is wrong with me that I am the only person in this room not affected and not touched. So Uh while I'm thinking I'm totally right in believing that that there is no Christian God. I'm still <laughs> sitting here confused as to what might be wrong with me. And my dad would send me up because my dad was one of those like he was a drug dealer when I was a kid. He was abusive most of our lives. Then he becomes a born again and gets even oh. you know, 10 times more, more abusive as a born again than he ever was. Like, I'll go for drug dealer daddy over abusive <laughs> Christian daddy anyway. <laughs> and and he would send me up to go get saved all the time. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. Like, cause he knew it didn't take. So he's mm. got, he's forcing me into a position to lie all the time about whether or not I believe in this, you know, blue eyed, blonde haired Jesus. And, and then eventually he sends me up to go get the Holy Spirit. So I got to go accept the Holy Spirit now. And if I don't oh, get, man. if I don't speak in tongues, I'm gonna get the shit kicked out of me. So <sighs> here's, here's what I did. Right. Like, I mean, I'm much better now. I went there, but at the time it was pretty traumatic. So right. here I am trying to figure out like, what the fuck tongues am I going to speak if I'm not touched by this Holy Spirit? So what I ended up doing was, do you remember JJ mm-hmm. Fat, Supersonic? So at the mm-hmm. end, she goes, the summalama, dumalama, simalama, dumalama, yeah. I just said that shit over and over again. And I should have known better than doing that shit in a black church because someone was going to pick it up at some point. And I definitely got some eye contact on occasion. Like, I know what you're up to. What the fuck am I going to do? I don't have the Holy Spirit. I can't be sitting here. And then I feel so like justified later on when they they slow down a video of like Pat Robinson saying, see my toy, my bow tie, tie my bow tie. Like that, that's the, they were trying to figure out what he was saying. So his tongues was like, see my bow tie, tie my bow tie. And he just kept saying it over and over again. I'm like, see, everybody does that shit. <laughs> so yeah, like, I, I mean, I definitely had my anger for a long time, but just sitting there trying to figure out what is wrong with me, what's broken in me that all these people believe this thing never even occurred to me, to me that they're just under the same amount of pressure I am and right. they're having to pretend and feel that, you know, believe that they're getting filled with the Holy Spirit. Right. Oh man, tongue talkers. I don't know. I don't know. I can't. And, it, I can't it, with and it's not just the same amount of pressure, but that they, you know, that they succumb to it mm-hmm. is a thing. That's the scary part to me about religion, that you can get grown-ups to, you know, believe in something. Yeah. Like, if you tell me, okay, you're going to worship my God or I'm going to slaughter you, I say, okay. But that don't mean that I'm going to believe that shit. You know what I mean? And that's the part that really trips me out about the whole world that, you know, that they need something to believe so bad. Yeah. That you're willing to even accept that this angry God is... (laughs) is going to put you in a bad place because you don't believe in them. And then you've got a president like we have right now, and he's like, you must follow me or you are against me. And then he's like, see, that's the same kind of thing. It's it's the same exact thing. Mm -hmm. It's exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. He's got no evidence. He's got no proof. Can't be disproven. You know what I mean? It's just like. It's an amazing system of control. It's a brilliant system of control. It sucks, especially because considering like how strong Catholicism is in the Latin world and how strong like Southern Baptist type stuff is for black folks or, or even Islam, um, things like that. And you're just sitting there thinking like you've been delivered this information from a white world and right. and you've well, taken the fall and run with it. It's like, um, how do you say like the tenderizer to the oppression you know Mm. Uh, they want you to be um, forgiving they want you to be docile they want Mm -hmm. you to be loving they want you to be compassionate caring no matter what and that's the part that trips me it's not just to that to be that way I feel that most human beings are that way on their own Mm-hmm. They want you to be that way no matter what they do to you, no matter what they take from you, no matter what, you know, stupid ritual they want you to follow or 
inflict upon your family or whatever it is, you know, and and that's why it's so such a mind fuck and, and mm-hmm. so messed up because there are parts of it that are very good. The community, you know, I don't see anything wrong with communion and, and having a community, a support system. Right. Uh, the preaching, lessons, fables, whatever, sure. you know, ways but to understanding teach the group. them as fables. Exactly. And not as religion. the yeah. word of God, you mm-hmm. know, as they always put it, this is the word of God. It's like once you attach the divine to it, it becomes manipulative. Mm-hmm. And that's the that's the part that I really have a problem with, because it's like it enables racism mm-hmm. and it doesn't necessarily enable for the dismantling of it. I'm a firm believer that brown children should have brown gods and the black children should have black gods because, it, you know, a God in all cultures, you are created in the God's image. Mm-hmm. So what does it say that your God is not does not look like you, does not represent you, it's you know, funny. does not. You look, you look to a white god. Yeah. And you also look to a white master. Then, yeah. You know, like how like, are you not going to think of them as superior in some way, shape, or form if this is right. drilled into you? But it's how funny because. How powerful is it to see yourself as a god? How powerful mm-hmm. is it to see that a god looks like your dad or your mom right. or, or that you one day will look like a god, you know? The thing that always got me was the um, the yeah the idea that uh, we've just decided Jesus is white and blue you know blue eyed and everything like that when he when the people from where he should have been still exist in that area they're, they're right. you know they're brown they got they got curly you know thick coarse hair and stuff like that but somehow we're still like okay it's fine we accept you as a long hair blue you know hippie type of thing it's like I mean Jewish people didn't start getting pale and you know yellow haired <laughs> until they went to Europe and now right. they're you know now that they're going back like these people still exist but no it's okay we'll still accept the white the white Jesus and the only people that I've ever really heard of address the reason why brown and black people exist is the Mormon church. And their description of it is insane. <laughs> the, it's the, the war from heaven, like when Lucifer is going to separate and everything like that. Whoever abstained from the fight. So if you picked God's side and you got to be white, if you picked hillside you turned into a demon but if you abstained until whoever won won they turned you brown and you went (laughs) did you know this i didn't know so so my anti-religion has has made me research some crazy shit like this and i saw this video i'll have to find it because i've seen it on youtube recently too and i'll i'll send it to you just so you can see how ridiculous this shit is so they're like for the people who abstained and were waiting for whoever won we sent their souls to earth as as brown people and they didn't start accepting black people into the church until like 1976 or 1978 the mormon church so up until then you couldn't be a brown Mormon. Now right. you can, but there's a caveat that like someone finally spoke to God and God was like, yeah, give him a chance. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> you know? I didn't know that. I, didn't so know that. I, I don't know of any other religion that addresses how brown skin, you know, comes about because if you read the Christian Bible, they talk about brown skin and coarse curly hair and stuff like that. But, yeah. but Christians as a whole have just like, no. <laughs> well, that's one of those inter- weird interpretation parts. Like everything else, we've we got it pretty nailed down. But that whole skin thing is, <laughs> you know, an interpretation. Yeah, um, I didn't know about that. That's crazy. 
because even like Hindu or Buddhism, like they don't necessarily address the race of the people. And so it tends to cross multiple cultures a little bit easier, at least sure. in the and in, in what I've learned about it. I don't I I'm less um, I'm less researched where those are concerned. But yeah, when I when I found that out about the, the Mormon stuff, I was like, dude, someone had to figure out why to, how to explain <laughs> black people, I guess, even though life originated in Africa. But OK, right. <laughs> It's, it's so strange. I've never heard that. I have to look into that now. I'll look at the, this video is insane because it also talks about the, the Immaculate Conception not being that she that God just spoke Jesus into her, but right. actually came down and had celestial sex with her. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So they, they go full on non-consensual sex with her and it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's, it's okay. okay. And worse than that, I think jo- Joseph's even kind of sitting in the background, like, "Okay, God, I guess, <laughs> like, I guess I gotta deal with this shit." Oh, so man. yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. I don't I don't understand that that at all. Another area that I wanted to cover with you was our industry. So we're both in entertainment, and you. So you you come from camera camera and, and producing or or writing directing. Oh, production. Yeah, I used to be a sound engineer, and then I got on set as a sound engineer, and that's I spent a couple of seasons doing a cooking show. That's when I kind of figured out how production works, and uh, I started doing little jobs with friends, you know, just producing small projects, and it, it turned out I was pretty good at it. So then I decided, you know, needed to come down to L.A. and really make a go at a career of it. So I... I relocated in 2010 and just been down here ever since so working in production. Yeah. How does race come into play for you? Do you notice things in terms of like how you're you're treated or respected? Do you try to pick your projects based off of necessity or or politics in any kind of way, shape, or form? Yeah, I mean, I have um, a pretty big network. A lot of good, not not racist white friends down here. Mm. Uh the race comes into play. I notice now that I'm in the higher tiers of commercial industry mm-hmm. uh, that they look to me mostly for like urban spots. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if it's going to be a multicultural piece or if it's a foreigner, mm-hmm. I get a lot of French people, especially uh, Latin American clients. They like to hook me with a lot of black products. And the reason I say black products, and one thing that I notice now and that's kind of bothering me is that when we when we target black audience, it's still white executives mm-hmm. that are the VP team making decisions. You know, when I when it's a Latin product, I have Latin producers, Latin agency, maybe they're coming from South America. Mm. You know, I've yet to receive an African delegation Mm. as a client group. You know what I mean? And now that's probably because they're doing that stuff on that side of the world. Right. But I would like to think that, you know, they've been making it this way. I mean, the Chinese have made it over here. All of Europe has made it over here. Mm. So that's one group that I haven't really seen, like, really make it over here. <clears throat> Do you feel that you get asked to work on those sort of non-white type of product projects because you are a palatable gap, you know, bridger? <laughs> yeah, I, I think so, because it's like, you know, 
the way I'm sitting here talking to you, like I don't change the way I am for anybody. Yeah. So, you know, they know I can get it done and they know I always come in under budget and they know my resources are crazy and they know I put together a good show and a nice product and I, the hospitality is great and all of that. But they know my crew is going to be diverse. Mm-hmm. You know, they know that uh, they know I'm from Oakland. You know, they know I'm not going to switch it up and do no song and dance for anybody. Yeah. And so I think they're very aware of that when pairing me with personalities. Because, I mean, if we be honest, a lot of these people are still racist as fuck on the really high end and the executive right. level, you know. And so they know I'm not going to hold my tongue for that shit. Mm-hmm. You know, I might rough them up. They know that about me. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like I might fight that fool if he talks crazy to me or one of my employees. So I think they're very uh, wary of that. I think there's also some scapegoatability because uh, I'll get jobs that like they should have never booked that mm. they don't have. They, there wasn't enough money for the creative. Mm. Uh, the client is difficult. You know, now, now they will put me with white clients when they're like a pain in the ass mm. and they need somebody that can finesse them because, you know, they know I don't lose my temper. You know, they know I'm going to do whatever to make it make him happy, make it work and that kind of stuff. You know, but I think that me and my one of my PMs talk about this. It will be easy for them to just write me off if it didn't t- work out and just be like, oh, yeah, you know, they fucked up or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or they won't be back here. You, you know, know? We give them a chance and they yeah, always. <laughs> yeah. That kind of shit. You yeah. know what I mean? Because I have companies like that, that I'm really, I'm a fixer. I mean, people call me when they're like, fuck, who can do this job, mm-hmm. you know? And I laugh sometimes because it's like, man, I want a cakewalk job. Right? You know what like, I mean? Why can't I do that? <laughs> but at the same time, it's one of the ways that I made a, a position for myself because mm-hmm. I can handle anything, you know? I have a, a internal conflict about that because there's times like I'm a hard worker when I've been on sets and stuff like that. I've busted my ass. And when I've had even either a younger or a Caucasian, you know, coordinator or something like that above, ahead of me. And they I'm like, you know, especially if they mistreat me or if they try to blame something on me, I'll be like, you know, that's dumb because you do know that you can you can get attention by just using me to do what I do well. But here right. you are calling me out off a mistake you made and right. you actually made it a little bit worse for yourself. And then now I'm sitting here going, how many times I helped out someone that didn't need my help? You know, like a white person is going to excel in a way that I may not because of the color of my skin. And here I have been like kind of busting my ass to get the reputation of being a hard worker and all this other kind of stuff. And now I'm like, have I been doing a version of, have I been soft shoeing this? Like, like what have I been doing? (laughs) So I'm trying to break away from that, but it's kind of a hard habit to break because you don't even realize that you're doing it to yourself until it's a little too late. At least in my case. It's an ethic. I mean, that's your ethic, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't think like whether or not people are benefiting of it, I don't think you change your ethic. You know, like that's how yeah, you that's it. operate. That's how you get where you're going. And you do it because that's that's what you feel comfortable with at the end of the day. You know, you're not a slacker. Yeah. And you don't want to miss anything, you know. But I get yeah, I get that, too. It's like, well, why am I over here busting my ass? Mm hmm. 
And this motherfucker's over here with his feet kicked up. And they're moving up at a faster right. rate than I am and things like that. I found it a lot more in, in production than I did in tech. So, like, whenever production wasn't working out for me, I would end up at a tech company. And then I'd rise really quickly. No problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. But even then, when I became vocal about something that was unpopular at the time and I was asked to keep quiet, um, sometimes I would be willing to keep quiet if, you know, and then I'd give you like, if if you give me this, like you tell this person to stop or you get them to curb their behavior, I'll swallow this information for a little while, you know, for the sake of my job. And then I get, I don't see them make those changes. So I become more mouthy and now I'm a problem. Right. So that's on the tech side. On the on the production side, um, it's just a question of I'm no longer popular because I've made somebody uncomfortable in doing really well and getting a lot of attention, and this made somebody pout. And so that person who pout, you know, is more is connected higher up than I am, and so they yeah. end up like you know now okay now Charmaine's not coming back next season or something like that. Oh um, man. So I've had a little bit of that, and which I think is what's speaking to me trying to build this, you know, POC content generator. It's like, you know what, I'll I'll bust my ass for, for my own, you know, because I know that it's a lot harder for us to, to come up a little bit. And I have the tools because I've been running businesses for white people for a really long time. So right. I'm trying to do it for myself now and for, for us. But I feel like it's a little bit more, it's a little bit harder of a grind when you're trying to do it until you get that established, those established relationships and network. And That's so you I don't do. really feel like on the production side, besides, besides the kind of reputation and work that you've created, you don't really have a whole lot of issues where you feel like your your race has been a detriment or anything like that? Well, the crew that I started on when I got in L.A. was a minority crew. The manager was Filipina and Italian, and she tend to hire all black people, I noticed. <laughs> so, like, her, co- her coordinator was black. She had two coordinators, a black girl and a black dude. They would co-coordinate. And then they would hire all black people. And we would have this fucking meeting every time we went on a big commercial. And he, the coordinators would come, and they'd be like, all right. They were like, now you guys already know. They looking at us like a bunch of niggas. Mm-hmm. So don't fuck up. <laughs> don't steal anything that's it and I, and I remember those times when things do go missing mm. and we all be looking at each other like you motherfuckers better not have steal anything I remember one time um, what went missing with like somebody's tablet or some shit right one of the agency people they was white and uh, and the crew's all black and so then that shit goes missing my coordinator, he's hella mad, you know? I'm like, it probably, I was like, I don't think it was any of us. Mm-hmm. He's like, you don't fuck it. He's like, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. though. They're going to look it's at like, us. It doesn't matter, though. They're still looking at us like we stole that shit. Mm-hmm. And so then uh, at the end of the day before they left, he ended up finding it was like under his jacket on his director's chair or whatever this agency Of did. course it was. Right. <laughs> so then he goes around, you know, apologizing and letting everybody know. But in a production trailer, you know, they were all still pissed because uh. they're like, fuck, you know, for that however many hours that was, you know, they was probably just dogging us. And you and know then, people uh, will remember that and right, necessarily right. remember they the apology. Remember that he found his shit. Right. And that he lost it. Right. 
Or uh, I just did a a big Quantrill commercial we shot over here at Beverly Hills, and I remember when we pulled up, the site reps just kind of looking because the crew is just all minority kids, <laughs> Latins, blacks. I had white kids too, but like a full on mix of minority kids, mm-hmm. and you know. The whole production team is minority. My my coordinator is Puerto Rican. My manager is Belizean black kid. Me, and so you know, like my first AD, black, just really good, really sharp people. Though you know, they can't say shit about it. Everybody's loving the production. <laughs> and so then when we're leaving and sweeping out, and then this lady, she was like, she looked like she was Afro Latina. She was some type of of black latin mix i could tell from her hair and her skin tone mm-hmm. and her features and she's like i have to tell you something i was like what's up she's like i really was worried when y'all first came <laughs> in here today she's like she's like i hate to say it she's like, but i've seen all these black people coming in production like, oh no <laughs> i was thinking this is going to be a shit show. Oh, no. Like, you you shut me down. She shut me up. She's like, this was the best crew. She's like, mm-hmm. I'm not shitting you. She's like, this is the best crew that we've had up here ever. And she's like, you guys were completely respectful. Nothing is broken. You cleaned everything, put it back together on time. And da, 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 da. She's like, I just really wanted to commend you and tell you and admit to you what I was thinking mm. when y'all came up in here. <laughs> and I was laughing because, you know, we know that. We know that's what they think. But yeah. that's like I want to do is come through and just completely change your perception of these young people, you know. So, right. And then <clears throat> now I have I have experienced the opposite, too, with uh you know, like I've been in an office, office PAN, and I was in a Swedish office one time. This place, I won't say their name on the podcast, right. but <laughs> they're out of Venice, right? This company, they're run by Swedes. And so I'm in their office PAN. I'm just like tearing apart time cards or something. And I hear one of the the VPs, you know, he's cussing, he's mad or whatever, and he gets off the phone. And they're like, they're like, what's wrong? And he's like, the the fucking editor. He's like, the fucking Mexican, Mm. (laughs) right? (laughs) I turned around and I looked at him, and everybody could hear a pin drop. They're all looking at me like, shit, you know? Uh, (laughs) And he's like, I'm sorry, man. He's like, I didn't, I didn't mean it like that. I just. He's like, ah, oh, this fucking guy. He's like going nuts, you know? Then why didn't you say this fucking guy? Why was Mexican right. on your mind? Right, right. But, you know. And so, and it, it was like, we were working for them, but that wasn't my boss, you know? Like, I was right. there with my coordinator and my, my uh, manager, who were both, they were both white, but they're not racist, you know? And they're like, we're so sorry. They're like, he's a fucking asshole, you know? I was like, all right. You can imagine... It's not my first <laughs> rodeo yeah. with this kind of shit. You know what I'm my, saying? I'm not clutching my pearls. I'm right. okay. I get it. <laughs> I just wanted to see what he was going to say once I looked at him, you know. He apologized. So uh, there was another time I remember I was 
same thing. I was office PA and the lady who hired me, her na- her last name was Jewish because she married a Jewish guy, but she was a Mexican. Mm. And I and I knew it, but n- a lot of people couldn't tell because she speaks Anglo and she's light skinned and she has Anglo features, more European features. But she's her like her mom is from Mexico, mm. and and I could tell I could tell when I had met her and when I was talking to her, she sounded like my aunt. And her name, her first name, right? So mm-hmm. her first name is Spanish, but white people don't know that. It's one of those names that oh, okay. white people don't know is a Spanish name because they pronounce it however they pronounce it, right? I don't want to say her name, so I'm right, trying right. to dance around this. But anyway, <laughs> so we're sitting there, me and this white girl, on the other side of a bay from our coordinator in the PM. And the Mexican girl's the coordinator that hired us, right? And so uh, all of a sudden, Mexico, it came up on the TV or something. Somehow Mexico comes up. And so then the white lady starts in the PM, and she's just like, she's like, oh, my God. She's like, I hate Mexico. She's like, it's so Look, look, she's like, she's like, it's so dirty and nasty and and the people are scary there. And and so I'm listening to the coordinator and she's like, oh, yeah. You know, she's just like, (laughs) oh, no, she's just like rolling with this shit, you know, and and we're listening on the other side. and, And the girl, she hired me. She was my friend. And she's like looking at me and she's like. Like, you know, she's making these eyes. I'm like, yeah, I know it's crazy, right? But I just like listening because I wanted to see how this mm-hmm. plays out. So she's telling her about how they went down there for some trip and somebody lost their purse. You know, she had a bad experience in right. Mexico. So that means get- all of Mexico. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that turned into Mexico being the scum of the earth, right? Oh so, my gosh. so then when she finishes her little diatribe, she's like, she turns to her and she's like, have you, she's like, have you ever been, you know, to Mexico? And she's like, oh yeah, I have actually. She's like, she's like, I'm Mexican. And I could hear that lady's heart drop. It's like, <laughs> she's like, and my mom is actually, she's from Mexico. We go every year and visit my family. Da, 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 da. Beautiful. Like, <laughs> like, like I love it there. And she's like. She's like, oh my god! She's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I was no, just ranting about my <laughs> bad trip. Now it's a bad trip, right? And she's changing all the words and shit. And uh, she's like, oh, it's okay. I totally get it, or whatever. Mm. <laughs> we're used to it. I was over there dying, but you know, these were some of my first experiences, and so I kind of learned from other people of color how to take it, how to roll with it, mm-hmm. and, and how to how to respond to it. And not that you have to deal with it or that you have to sit there and continue the job or not. But if you want the job, you do. So that's, you know, that's something that's very racist about the industry, I right. feel like, is, it you know, that... Us into respectability, politics, and maneuvering. Right. And, a lot and of times. 
I'm I'm the kind of person like I always would quit a job if it wasn't a good job or the right job for me. Like that's how I am. But with film, it's different because like you know we love this shit. It's what you want to do. You're trying to get to the point. It's the way people see minorities. So you have to like play within the system to get in a position to be able to do that. You can't. You know you you have to deal with it to get that far. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's really it's it's kind of crazy. Yeah like the me too movement going which is totally needed but it's like okay how do we get that conversation going with race you know what i mean how do we get them right. to feel like me too with race you know what i mean like when it's uh when it's something again that we are the ones that have to learn to control ourselves and our reaction to racism instead of the races having to control their racist mouth you know what i mean like and that goes back to your experience in little league when you're you learn you can't react because you'll confirm their beliefs their beliefs about you it's something so specific to people of color that white people will never have no one's telling their white kids oh don't behave like a racist because then you'll confirm their suspicions they'll be they're just this way and it's fine right right um that's the frustrating part and i think I think everything is sort of follows a similar path, right? So in in, a, in the United States, we go from white women getting the vote really before we fully allow black men to get the vote. Officially, black men had the vote, but they were, you know, still being attacked sucked. for, yeah. you know, they arrested, hung, you know, whatever. Um, so then white women have to get the vote. And then we start to say, OK, now it's more palatable for black men and then black women to get the vote. In in Me Too movement, I think, is a version of that, too. It's like, OK, now we're going to accept that women have been assaulted or harassed over the course of years and we need to fix this. So when do we get to jump from that to a hashtag that is production while black or production while colored or whatever the fuck it ends up being? Um, But because like, yeah, like I have stories from production in which I feel that I'm let's put Charmaine in this position because she is not as dark as as the other ones. Right. So I've seen that. I've seen yeah. that too. Yeah, I'm a little bit more palatable um, in terms of the visual of of it. Um, I have, you know, we all have sort of our white voice or our, you know, our our respectable voice, our Anglo voice that we can use in front of people. But then, you know, in the lunch table when we're all kind of grouped together, it's like, oh, Charmaine, I didn't know you said motherfucker that way, um, <laughs> <laughs> like or whatever, you know, whatever ends up being. And it's just this point of frustration that it's like, why do we have to behave such a way um, and not just be able to be ourselves without ourselves being looked at as somehow too urban or too black or too wherever we come from? um, As if there's no positive aspects of being a a person of color or coming from different cultures. It's just like, it's got to be negative. Yeah. And, you know, and I feel like I could be in more companies or be doing more bigger jobs more often if I was willing to do that song and dance. But I'm not. You know, I'm a young Afro-Latin entrepreneur. I got different streams of income for this reason. You know, growing up, I was like, fuck this whole system. Like, I got to go and get it, you know, because I didn't ever want to be like waiting for a handout from somebody who didn't have my best interest in mind, you know? And um, it plays to it now, because sometimes, you know, 
I think like that. Like, well, maybe I should play ball a little more. Maybe I should, you know. But then at the end of the day, I'm like, you know, what? I'm I'm all right. I'm, I'm paying my bills. I'm saving money. I'm fucking. I have my own time. You know, like fuck that shit. Like yeah. this is like my American dream. You know, to be right. able to do and say what I want. And here I'm making money for the people that hire me. That you know, respect me as a filmmaker. They don't worry about that side of things. And so to then be the benefits, you know, you said that you always come in under budget and things like that. You have that reputation, but do you feel that you are paid your worth in terms of your skills or do you, do you feel that yours, it could probably be better because, uh, I, I, I think I'm paid my worth. Um, Mostly because I I demand it. Like if someone offers me less than I think I want for something, I'll tell them. Mm-hmm. And then also because I come in under, I take I will take what I want. Like I'll take a job knowing that what they got in the budget isn't enough, but knowing that I can make enough of a budget. Okay. To pay myself, and I will. So then the other thing that I do is I have my own company. I only work through my company. So you know, even if I'm going through a payroll company, I loan myself out. You know, if it's not payroll, then I invoice myself. I do all my business through my minority control company. And, and, um, that's another way that I, um, stick it to the man, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I get all the money, you know, and then I, I pay my taxes after I write off what I need to write off and stuff right. like that, which is something that I try to teach other young people doing okay. this, how to maximize their, their self, you know, and nice. their businesses and their self-worth to get the most out of it. But yeah, that's something that I, that I often do, you know, cause, uh, and I will get the bigger companies that will try to pay me cut rate, but it's the same thing. I'll do the same thing. Mm-hmm. I'll say, okay, you know, I can do that, but I can't do all of this for that. But if it's cool with you, I'll make up the difference in the budget and I'll just pay myself with the underage. Mm-hmm. They don't ever care. Yeah. yeah. So that's usually what I do. That Between that or taking the job through my company, um, you know, I'm able to not have to deal with the politics That's good. of certain places that I don't want to be. Cause I, yeah, I seen it and, uh, you know, have been, luckily have been able to navigate myself away yeah. from, away from that. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, you know, I'm not making, uh, I'm not working 350 days out the year as a top commercial producer but at the same time uh because i'm not i'm allowed to do other things with my time you know i've seen guys like that and they just go job to job you know spending all their time making money which isn't the life that i'm looking to have you know 
want to grow businesses, help friends grow their businesses, help my wife grow her business, you know, to have time for myself and to, it's not all about work, you know, so that's cool. I think that's right. And hopefully you're inspiration too, to the younger people that are coming up under you and seeing that you're able to do this and, and, and not only just seeing that you're doing it, but, but believing that that translates into, oh, I can do this. People of color can do this. You know, you don't have to be, you don't have to have a white manager or something like that. Right. Right. No, definitely. I mean, I'm always trying to the ones who are receptive. Everybody isn't ready or can Mm -hmm. see, you know, there's certain things you have to know before you can be open to anything else. But for the ones that are open and that want more for themselves out of life, definitely. Yeah. Uh, I reach out to them in my family, through friends. People will refer people to me. I do. Uh, I have a friend that puts on a, an event called Filmmakers Link Up mm-hmm. every couple months for people of color in the industry. I go and I speak at those events and network with people, try to help them figure out how to navigate the industry, how to get in, good habits, you know, just how to be the best they can be at whatever they're doing Mm -hmm. and we also like share resources and whatnot to try to uh make a space where you can create even though you may not have the money that you should have Mm -hmm. but because you know all these people who have these different talents in different areas and different resources that you can get get your stuff together you know yeah so i think being militant lends itself to being involved in community activity and trying to help your people. You know, I don't really think you could be militant and not want to help other people. I think it really comes from a place of, of wanting to be able to help. Yeah. You know, it's, so it's self-help, wanting to be able to help yourselves and yeah. to help your own, you know. So. And the, just dealing with the frustration of feeling like all this makes sense to take care of your of your people and to right. lift everything. If we all lift up together, then we're everybody's up, you know, not just grabbing for yourself necessarily um, right. and being depressed. I think that is the reason why we, we do get to that place. I, I would be just as happy knowing that some con- contribution I did for somebody else helped them get to an, a happy place as I would be if I managed to get to that spot myself. Exactly. I think I think that's right, and I think that is a good place for us to wrap up too. All right, huh? Cool. All right, Talk thank to you, later. you. I appreciate Bye. it. Militantly Mix is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Johnson. Music is by David Bogan, The One. And if you like what you heard on Militantly Mix, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.